0: Hello readers, coming up it's my chat with Josh Rogan about chaos under heaven. First wanted to let you know to check out booksonpod.com. We have recently revamped the website making it much easier for you to search through to find your favorite authors, your favorite books, your favorite subjects and listen to the corresponding conversations for those things. And for the latest on this show follow us on social media that Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Books on Pod.
1: This is Nicole Perlerock. My book is called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling.
0: Hello, readers. Josh Rogan is a Washington Post foreign policy correspondent and CNN political analyst. He's also the author of the new book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh, thank you for the time. How you doing today? I'm doing great,
1: Trey. Thanks so much for
0: doing this. Absolutely. So what is the significance of titling this book, Chaos Under Heaven? Right. So the phrase chaos under heaven comes from a quote that's attributed
1: to Mao Zedong. Uh, We couldn't figure out if he actually said it or not, but the quote goes something like this. There is great chaos under heaven. The situation is excellent. And according to the lore, what Mao was basically saying was that for the Chinese Communist Party, the more its enemies were in chaos and divided and fighting amongst themselves, the better that was for them. Of course, that turned out to be key in the Chinese Communist Party's initial conquering of China. And, you know, when I started covering the Trump administration, it was chaos from the start. I mean, especially on the China issue, but not only on the China issue. The confusion went to the top, and the book begins in the transition uh, in Trump Tower, where guys like Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro and Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn and KT McFarland are stuck together dealing with these Chinese officials who had come from Beijing to lecture them. And they were all over the map. They all had different ideas about what the Trump administration China policy would be. And of course, as soon as the administration started, it went downhill from there. And that's not to say that good things didn't happen and some bad things happened as well. But overall, what the book documents is four years of utter dysfunction and uh, an administration that was at war with itself and a political team that was at war with the government beneath it and and that all happened at a time in our politics where the government and the media and the intelligence community and foreign countries were all in a period of great change but also great confusion and dysfunction as well and capturing all of that together was very difficult that's what we couldn't do at the time the first time i reported this story for the washington post in a bunch of 800 word columns It was more of a linear story, but when I went back and did another 400 or so interviews, I realized it was actually very layered, and what was going on on the surface and what we saw with our eyes was often quite different from what was going on inside the system, and those things were connected in unique and unpredictable ways. And that's what I tried to get at. And I'm sure I didn't do a perfect job, but I think I got closer the most.
0: Well, thinking linearly about it, the trouble started long before the Trump administration. What impacted China's admission into the World Trade Organization around the turn of the century have? And was it a mistake to allow that in retrospect? Right. Great question. I mean, I think what I sort
1: of learned over covering the U.S.-China relationship first as a reporter for the Asahi Shinbun Japanese newspaper back in 2004 to 2006, and then for a a number of different publications, including Congressional Quarterly, Foreign Policy Magazine, Newsweek, The Daily Beast, Bloomberg, Washington Post, CNN, etc., is that over the course of the past 20 years or so, different parts of the U.S. government and then eventually different parts of American society all slowly but surely came to the realization, more or less, that the grand bet, the grand bargain that we had made since the opening of China in 1972 by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, by the way, that bet was essentially that if we engaged them as much as possible and integrated them, this is the Chinese government, the Chinese leadership into our systems as much as possible, that they would liberalize economically and then politically, and that would in turn solve all all of our problems. There was a growing realization that that bet had been lost, Uh, not because we didn't try, not because we didn't earnestly want to include China in the, whatever you want to call it, liberal world order, the system since World War II that are. International and national governance was based on, but because China had decided to go a different way, that especially since the rise of Xi Jinping, but even before that, the Chinese leadership had decided that they know they did, they they didn't want China to develop in a way that looked like our development. That the Chinese path towards modernization was going to be unique to them, and they didn't really much care if we liked it or not. And when Xi Jinping came to power, that a lot of that uh, behavior became malign, and a lot of it became. You know, in other words, intended to harm us and intended to weaponize our engagement against us in ways that we were slow to realize. So, you know, the original sin of that, in the view of many, was granting Chinese uh, permanent national trade relations status, which essentially gave them the benefits of being a good economic actor in the world without requiring them to pay any of the costs or following any of the rules. And that was a deep advantage that we sowed into them. Against us in our system, in the hopes that they would play nice, and they didn't. And you know, was that a mistake? Well, hindsight is twenty twenty. It seems now that that bet didn't pay off, but that doesn't mean it wasn't the righteous thing to do at the time. You know, we had to, and I think in some ways we still do have to make sure that we leave the door open for cooperation and engagement, so that if the Chinese people or the Chinese leadership do decide that they do want to be part of uh, a, you know a system based on the things we believe in human rights and the rule of law and free markets and democracy and freedom and and all of these multilateral systems that we're sort of built to protect all of us that we have to want them to do that encourage them to do that allow them to do that so it's easy to say that we shouldn't have offered them that but I think we, we probably was the right thing to do at the time but now we have to realize that it didn't work out we just have to be clear-eyed about that and then we have to mount our strategic response.
0: In terms of the pre-Trump era of dealing with China, it was also a bit surprising to learn that the Obama administration was making a lot of concessions toward China, especially during his second term. How was that administration's treatment of the Dalai Lama a good example of this? The Obama administration, which I covered very, very
1: closely on this issue, was also divided. And over time, that division exacerbated ...policy differences inside the administration, especially as Xi Jinping got more and more determined to be a bad actor. But the sort of idea that one of the most important things to do was to not piss off the Chinese leadership, that was ingrained into the Obama administration's DNA. In other words, if your goal is to have smooth relations... If the thing that you prize the most is a good relationship, well, then that's going to lead you to do a lot of things that are not necessarily right and are not necessarily in your interest. And the Dalai Lama is the chief example, right? So I'm old enough to remember when George W. Bush welcomed the Dalai Lama to Washington and gave him, handed him the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor, the highest honor that Congress can bestow upon a foreign citizen, and gave a speech in defense of the rights of Tibetans. And that doesn't mean that George W. Bush was particularly tough on China, but that was just the thing he wanted to do. But when the Obama people came in, for the first year, they wouldn't meet with the Dalai Lama at all. Valerie Jarrett was actually dispatched to Dharamsala, India, which is not an easy trip if you've been there, just to tell him not to come to Washington for the first year. You're not invited, which is like a crazy thing to say. And then when they did come, when he did come, they, you know, did several things to insult the guy, to make it clear to Beijing that they didn't really, really like him. They made him walk out through the back door instead of the front door, which happened to be past a big heap of, like, trash bags, so all the pictures of the Dalai Lama at the White House are him stepping over garbage, you know, they wouldn't meet him in the Oval Office, they had to meet in the map room, which is kind of silly, you know, and all of these things were part of this, what I consider a very flawed notion amongst the Obama White House people, which is like, oh, we can't piss off Beijing, we can't piss off Beijing, and, you know, of course, that sent the exact wrong signal to Beijing, which is... Oh, it's good for you to get pissed off all the time, and of course that's what they do now. And it doesn't matter what you do if you like, you know, tweet something about Hong Kong. Well, oh my God, you've just insulted 1.4 billion Chinese people, and they're gonna punish the whole NBA, right? If your Marriott hotel chain accidentally, you know, lists like Taiwan as a country on the web, like you know, that's a real example. All of a sudden, that whole hotel chain has to be. Punished because we allowed the Chinese Communist Party to pretend that, like, we had to worry about its feelings more than our own rights and our own interests, and I think that was really terrible. The Trump administration kind of swung the door back in the other direction a little too far, where they pissed them off just for fun, you know, they were like, insult them and do all sorts of stuff that wasn't productive. So, I mean, you could argue for some sort of middle ground, but I just thought the way the Obama people treated the Dalai Lama was, you know, insulting and really, you know, terrible and kind of awful for Americans to watch. But then again, the Trump administration, they never, the Dalai Lama never even came to Washington because the Titans were so scared about what Trump might do, they didn't want to take the chance. So again, you, you know, I think both sides have
0: made a lot of mistakes. Before we start digging into the Trump administration and their dealings with the CCP, what was an internal memo issued by the CCP called Document 9?
1: Right, so this is another important thing because at the beginning of the Obama administration, Xi Jinping wasn't president yet or general secretary or whatever you want to call him. And when he first came into power, Xi Jinping didn't really have total control. And he was presenting himself like a reformer. And a lot of the people in the Obama administration bought that. And you know they're like, oh, this guy's going to be great. He's going to be a reformer. He's going to take China in wise directions, et cetera, et cetera. But what we didn't know was that he had actually instructed the rest of the Chinese system, the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, to go in the opposite direction in, in many different documents. But the one that people talk about is called document number nine, which was leaked by someone in the party and then that person who leaked it was you know disappeared. And basically what it says is it's Xi Jinping's personal instructions about how Chinese government officials should view the West. And basically what he says is that he believes that China is in an existential ideological struggle for the West and that the party's survival and the party's success depends on fighting not just Western countries economically and militarily, but to fight their ideas that the simple systems of western journalism and civil society and human rights organizations and multilateral trade structures that these were all in xi jinping's view sort of western imperialist scams meant to subjugate china and keep china down and stop china from achieving what he calls the china dream which is a world that's dominated by Chinese power and influence, a world where China is the main superpower, and no one can tell it what to do, and you can tell everybody else what to do. That doesn't mean that they want to invade every country. It doesn't mean that they want to make every country have a system that looks like China's. It just means a world order safe for autocracy and repression and the like. The reason that's so important is because you know a lot of times, especially in Washington, but around the United States, a lot of people will sort of make this disingenuous argument, well, they just want to do business. And yeah, maybe they have some human rights abuses, but that shouldn't be really that important because, you know, basically it's a big economy and we've got to do business with them. And they're not really out to get us. They just want to do their own thing. In other words, China is not really about running the world. They're just about, you know, expanding and and making money. And that's a very tempting argument to make because it could justify ignoring a lot of horrible things like a genocide against Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang and several other aggressions and repressions. And what I say is like, if you want to understand what Xi Jinping just read what he says. If you want to know what he thinks, just read what he says and listen to what he says in speeches. He lays it out pretty clearly, not in English, but in Chinese, he lays it out pretty clearly. And a lot of people say, oh, well, what do you want, a Cold War with China? That's crazy. Why would you want a Cold War? And what I say to that is, no, 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 it's not that we want a Cold War. We don't want a Cold War. That's not a great outcome. We don't want an international ideological struggle with China. But it seems like Xi Jinping does. We know that because he wrote it down in things like document number nine. And so we're going to have to deal with that. You know, And Cold War is not a good outcome, but it's really not the worst outcome. The worst outcome is a hot war or, or a situation where the China dream becomes so prevalent that it constrains us from doing what we want and tweeting what we want and having the systems that we want and protecting our values and interests. So I you know I I just think we have to again be clear-eyed and realistic about the CCP that we're dealing with and one of the best ways to understand it is just read what they wrote you know and start with document number 9
0: Speaking of Xi Jinping, Trump, who of course was speaking uh, in a very hardline manner as he was running for president, ultimately gets elected. He steps in it prior to even taking office by fielding a call from the Taiwanese president. I think at that point he probably realizes just how complicated the issue was. You talked about a little bit earlier in this conversation how there was never really a consensus amongst his policymakers in terms of how they needed to handle China. But there were some high hopes as Trump. Welcomed Xi Jinping to Mar a Lago in April of 2017. What were the hopes of Trump's team with this meeting and what actually happened that weekend? It was such an important thing because,
1: you know, if you just take yourself back to that time, and you mentioned the Taiwan issue, which is really important too, because this is sort of Again, the sort of the first scandal of the Trump presidency is that President Trump is going to take a call from the Taiwanese president It's breaking 40 years of tradition. Why would he do that? He Oh, well, he must either be like looking for a Cold War with China or something like that. And the truth of the matter, as I reported in the book, was that he didn't realize it. His staff kind of tricked him into doing it. And then he figured that out and he got very angry and it poisoned him on Taiwan. And the reason that that was important was because, of course, Xi Jinping was really pissed off at him for taking a call from Taiwan, and he felt bad about that because he wasn't trying to piss off Xi Jinping, at least not at that moment, so he had to fix it. So they had a phone call where they decided to have the Mar-a-Lago summit and make nice, and the condition for the Mar-a-Lago summit was that Trump would agree never again to talk to the president of Taiwan. So then they get to Mar-a-Lago, and this is, you know, in every, in any respect, in any sense a very 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 big deal and at this point because President Trump wanted it to go well and he wanted to make friends with Xi Jinping he handed the ball over to his economic officials and away from his national security officials and they set up this process to make a trade deal and the theory was if you could just make a trade deal and you know have a beautiful summit in Mar-a-Lago remember they had that big piece of chocolate cake and you know the President Trump bombed Syria and he told she about it. They had a nice laugh about it, and this was kind of the stuff of history. And they were, this this for a, a brief moment in U.S.-China relations, it seemed like they were gonna make a trade deal, and there was gonna be a détente, and there would be no U.S.-China Cold War, and everything would be wonderful. But that only lasted like about a hundred days, exactly a hundred days, because Trump's trade team and the economic officials didn't understand China, they didn't understand Xi Jinping, they didn't understand what they were dealing with, and. Eventually they realized that, you know, the Chinese system was not going to change and they weren't going to make a deal that was going to you know, satisfy Trump because they weren't going to abandon all of their bad trade practices and their industrial policies. They're just not going to do it. They'll tell you they're going to do it. They'll have a big summit in Mar-a-Lago where we all sit around in Florida and they promise to do it, but then they don't do it. And so this was another sort of education for a a, a president who didn't have any experience in government. Who, thought he knew a lot about china but did really didn't know much about china at all he figured out eventually that this wasn't going to work of course they later made a trade deal it wasn't a really good trade deal and it never it really went. But that's a separate story. But at this point in the story at the Mar-a-Lago summit, that was like a moment of optimism. But that moment of optimism was uh, soon crushed.
0: Within the divisiveness, it seems like Matt Pottinger, at least based on your writings, who was the National Security Council senior director for Asia in Trump's administration, it seems like he was one of the more rational voices on this subject. Why was Australia a good example for Pottinger to show what China was capable of in terms of manipulating other countries? Yeah, that's a
1: really good question. So, you know, there were several factions on China inside the Trump administration. So the one end you had like what I call the super hawks. This is like Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller. And these guys wanted to bring down the CCP right now. You know, if you ask them what they wanted, they like, we should just bring these guys down right now. They wanted to blow up the relationship. They thought that CCP was like essentially like the Nazis or Mussolini or whatever other totalitarian, nationalist, socialist example you want to point to. And if you think from that perspective, well, if they're the Nazis, I guess we should take, wouldn't it have been better to take down the Nazis in 36 rather than in 45? You know, you could see the logic of that, right? Then yeah. on the far other side, you have the Wall Street clique. And this is the Minuchins and Larry Kudlow's and Gary Cohn's of the world. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is really about business. And we really have to keep the business channels open. We, we're intertwined. And that means no national security confrontation with China, no matter what. And then somewhere in the middle, you had uh, the hardliners. And this is the team that was essentially managed by a national deputy national security advisor, Matthew Pottinger, who, you know, if you know him, he's like 45, but he looks like he's 25. You know, he's a former reporter. He's a a very kind of bookish. He's very sort of like quiet. He's kind of a. Skinny. He doesn't seem like a. You know, he had all these guys like Jim Mattis and John Kelly and Rex Tillerson, and the, these were a lot of like big, fat, old white men who who were who had these huge egos. But then you have Matt Podger who's like a worker bee, right? But as it turns out, he ended up having more influence than any of them for a couple of really important reasons. One is because he had to work the system, and he had a, a whole team of people who were trying to move the government and not just the politics. And a lot of these cabinet level people they're worried about the politics and what does Trump think and what's he gonna tweet today. But underneath them is this whole government. Matt Pottinger was really working on changing the government, you know, steering it towards a more competitive China approach. And second of all, he lasted the longer because he wasn't an ego driven personality. And so he was there all four years, so we actually got a lot done. And you know what and by the way, there were some hardliners that were famous Trump people like John Bolton. Mike Pence was definitely one of them. Mike Pompeo at times These were people who didn't want to blow up the whole relationship for the fun of it, but they did want to reset it. Their point was this. We can't let the Chinese government get away with all this stuff anymore. But rather than trying to change China, what we have to do is change our own policy. We have to change what we're doing to respond to what they're doing because they're not going to change. And by changing what we're doing, we put them to a test. In other words, we got to make it harder for them to do the bad stuff. We've got to make it costlier for them to have predatory trade practices. We've got to make it more uncomfortable for them to commit a genocide against Uyghurs. They're not going to stop the genocide. The least thing we can do is make, them, make it tougher for them. And if you think about it that way, that's exactly what ended up happening. We turned the United States towards a more competitive, more confrontational policy towards China to increase the cost for their bad behavior. Now, the problem, of course, is that they still haven't changed their bad behavior, but at least they're not 100% getting away with it anymore.
0: Who is the group you call the Bingo Club, and what is their significance?
1: This gets to your Australia question, which I failed to answer in the last question, but I'll link it in here. So one of the things the hardliners and a lot of other people inside Washington were sort of, I like to say, waking up to over the last four years was the idea that the Chinese Communist Party had built an extensive, comprehensive influence campaign inside of our country, not just our politics, but in various parts of American society. And it's not like the... Russian one, which is like mostly like Twitter bots and Facebook groups and fake news and stuff like that. What the Chinese had done is they had targeted for years and years and years and still continued to do so, by the way, elites on both sides of the aisle and institutions in all parts of society, including academia, sports, Hollywood, the tech industry, Wall Street, especially Wall Street, and not just in America, by the way, in countries all over the world. And the way they had done this was by through what they call the United Front. And the United Front is this part of the Chinese Communist Party, and it dates back to Mao's times, and it's still described in Maoist terms as striking the party's enemies using the party's friends, and essentially what it is is a network of hundreds, if not thousands, of front groups, front companies, NGOs, organizations, figures that are meant to advance the party's interests, not China's interests, the Communist Party's interests, all over the world, everywhere, and they do this through proxies, through, again, sort of Hong Kong billionaires or Thai billionaires or Taiwanese billionaires or Malaysian billionaires, whoever it is. And they build front groups that are like, you know, the Chinese Association for the Reunification of Taiwan in Southern Florida. Right? That's a, like a real example. Like, why is there a Southern Florida NGO funded by a Hong Kong billionaire that's directed at reunification with Taiwan? Well, that's because this is how this stuff works. And in 2017, there was no part of the U.S. government looking at this. Nobody was... On this, the intelligence community focuses on, like, spies. You know, they focus on cyber theft and cyber attacks and, like, you know, honey traps. and Where they, like, you know, like, remember that woman in San Francisco who honey trapped all those mayors and maybe honey trapped Eric Swalwell? Like, that's what they focus on. And then the State Department focuses on, like, propaganda and media and, like, soft power stuff. Nobody was focusing on this network, this united front network of front organizations funneling billions and billions of dollars into universities and Hollywood studios and you name it but there were a lot of people in Washington who were like oh my god we should probably have a discussion about this but it's a very tough thing to talk about because you know how do you go to a university and say listen we think you might have been compromised by the Chinese Communist Party you don't even know it or maybe you do know it that's even worse so there was a small group of people that met in secret to talk about it for a couple of years actually and these were like some law enforcement FBI people some politicians some White House people and eventually they were like oh man one of the really important things we're going to need to do is to educate the American people about all of this influence stuff. They People need to know about it. It's the best way to sort of fight is, is to expose it. They're like, we should probably get someone from the media. So they invited me into this group, and I started going to the meetings. And I was like, oh, my God, we got a problem here. you know? And some of the book is about that club, but a, a lot of it is about what that club unearthed, which was a lot of this network of really malign influence where they just bribe and shove a lot of money into a lot of hands until – They've destroyed the antibodies in our democracy. It's to change us from within, to disable our ability to understand who we are and then fight it back against who they want us to be.
0: Do you have a favorite example of them exposing and stopping some form of Chinese influence here?
1: Yeah, yeah. So one of the ones I talk about in the book was at the uh, University of Texas at Austin. You know, you're in Austin. I'll tell this story. So there's this group called the China-U.S. Uh, Exchange Foundation, CUSEF. Some people call it QSEF, whatever, and it's run by a billionaire named Tung Chi Wah. and who is Tung Chi Wah? Well, he was the first chief executive of Hong Kong after the handover. In other words, so you could say he's a Hong Kong billionaire, but, you know, he worked for the Chinese Communist Party when he was running Hong Kong for them, and what else is he? Had? Well, he's the vice chairman of this organization called the CPPCC, which, you know, just to make it as simple as possible, is the largest United Front organization there is. It's the biggest one. Like, if you know how the United Front works, that's the one you want to be in. It's just thousands of people from all over the world spreading the Chinese Communist Party's agenda into all sorts of countries. And so, you know, he runs this foundation and they, you know, give millions of dollars to whoever will take it. And sure enough, whoever takes it usually they to get these free trips to China, where the you know you learn about how the Uyghurs love it in the education camps, or how Tibet's wonderful, or any any of these sort of propaganda efforts. But uh, one of the things he wanted to do was to fund the China Center at UT Austin at the LBJ School. And it's one thing if sort of you you know you have uh, one of these operations that sort of funds a book or a scholar, or it takes some congressional staffers to China for some sort of propaganda tour. But UT Austin is a huge public university, and they're going to have a China Center for the first time. And just to have it funded by a Chinese Communist Party proxy, by a by a, one of the chief proxies, one of the guys who's most well known for funneling Chinese Communist Party agenda items into our into our system, that seemed to be a problem to some people inside the university. But there wasn't really a way to to raise it or to talk about it. And eventually, what happened is a couple of the professors in the university who had connections in Washington and who were parts of this bingo club, worked with other members of the bingo club to sort of understand it, first of all, to get the information together, first of all, of who was this guy, Tong chi Wah, what was this thing called the CPPCC, and... They put together the best information that they had at the time, and a lot of it came from Australia because the Australians have been dealing with this issue for Chinese influence in the United Front for many years now. It's much—it's a much worse problem in their system because they have a lot more of it, and their system is much smaller, so it has a much bigger impact. So in Australia, they already have legislation to deal with this kind of thing. It's been a big front-page issue there for 10 years, but... Even now in the United States, most Americans never heard of it. Most but people who are listening to this never heard of what I'm talking about. But in 2018, it was even worse. So first they got all the information. Then the bingo club members went to the senators who were the, the, you know, the Texas senators, John Cornyn and Ted Cruz, and educated them about it. And then, you know, then they came to me. And between the people inside the university, the people who had the information, the Senate offices, and the Washington Post – Eventually, everyone got their heads together to be like, wait a second, this is not a, a good idea. And a fight ensued inside of the LBJ school. That's what's detailed in the book between the dean and some of the professors. And eventually, the president of the university, to his credit, he decided not to take the money, you know, under pressure from Congress and The Washington Post. And recognizing having educated himself on the United Front for the first time, he rejected the money and that Chinese influence inf- operation was thwarted. But what they did was they just took the money to another Texas institution the George H.W. Bush Foundation which got like a five million dollar gift from Tung Chi Wah just a few months later so you know it's kind of a little bit of whack-a-mole but At least at that moment, that was considered a victory.
0: Uh, So disheartening to hear what the end result still is, despite the fact that uh, an alarm was sounded there. Now, another way that the Chinese gain influence is through something called joint ventures, which simply put is partnerships with American businesses that give access to land or information or some combination of the two. And as strong as the Chinese military has been in terms of sheer numbers for a while now, their Air Force technology has lagged. That is, until about a decade ago. Why do we have General Electric to thank for China modernizing their military air fleet? Right, right. I mean, it's really
1: crazy when you think about it that we have this idea that, you know, if we just helped all of these Chinese industries, that, you know, that would eventually redound to our benefit. And you see it on a range of fronts. I mean, you see it in scientific collaboration. You see it in artificial intelligence. You see it in military technology. And the idea was that, you know, okay... We get something, the American companies get access to the Chinese market, and they get something. They get help bringing their industries from zero to 60, you know, and uh, with the help of uh, uh, these American companies. And it was always sort of well known that the Chinese government was abusing these relationships to some degree, stealing the IP of these American companies, and then eventually, you know, using it to compete with those companies. That, that happens in wind, windmills to computer chips to you name it. But there are some really egregious examples of where we handed them, quite literally, the 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 tools that they're using to, to compete with us and to threaten us. And the American corporations did it because they wanted that short-term access because they didn't care about the national security implications. They wanted access to the Chinese market, and that's what they had to do. And this Boeing example is just one example because you know when 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 it was in, when they announced that they're doing a joint venture with a Chinese airplane conglomerate. It seemed like a win-win, right? I mean, they put out a press release. They were very proud of it. But as the Pentagon was tracking uh, you know, the Chinese military shortcomings in aeronautics, it started to notice that uh, those shortcomings were becoming less and less. And all of a sudden, the things that they needed, they somehow developed in rapid speed. And basically, the only sane conclusion is that they stole all this stuff from Boeing. And maybe Boeing didn't care because they still had the access. They're still making money. But either way, U.S. companies ended up helping the Chinese skip decades of development and and all basically build the military that's pointed at us with our technology. Now, that's also connected to the fact that they built all that stuff with our money. And all of those Chinese companies were built up with the help of Wall Street and American investors and American capital flows. And a lot of them listed on American stock exchanges and continue to receive the investments of hundreds of millions of Americans hand over fist all day long. And, you know, this again, this is also part of the sort of big misunderstanding of the way china works by a lot of people in our society and our leadership when they thought that oh well you know what's the big deal you help out a chinese aerospace company and maybe yeah maybe we're gonna have to compete with them but you know that's all part of the game and then you realize that you know that chinese aerospace company and the chinese military inextricably linked not like here where we have like contractors and contracts is essentially for the most part you know things that we know about there it's you know if you if you give a technology to a Chinese company, the PLA will have it. They will use it. There's no doubt about it. And then, you know, they're going to turn it into a weapon against us. And, you know, whether or not that happened in the labs in Wuhan is something that we could talk about. But that's, you know, kind of the same problem. You know, we do like sort of collaborative science, collaborative business. And we think, oh, yeah, this is great. We're going to get closer to China. We're going to have a great relationship. And we're going to have it's going to be like Kumbaya. We're going to have a great uh, peace and coexistence. And then we fail to understand that, no, 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 their system is different. It doesn't act like ours. The party runs everything. The party will take what it wants to take. The companies don't have a choice. The scientists don't have a choice. The Chinese universities don't have a choice. And if they can, because the party has no moral compunction, because it's a genocidal regime that's willing to do anything to maintain power and has
0: enormous unlimited resources, chances are if we give them something, they're going to weaponize it against us. Well, and I think you pointed out a great example of even trying to speak out in minimal terms about this with what happened through the NBA less than two years ago now. If there was a general awakening prior to COVID that opened people's eyes to what's going on with China, it is the story involving Daryl Morey, the former GM of the Houston Rockets. He's now with the Philadelphia 76ers. And a tweet that he sent out in October 2019. The tweet simply said fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. What was the Chinese reaction to this? And just how terrible was the NBA's initial attempt to save face considering how much business they do over in China?
1: Yeah, this is such an important story because, you know, as we were just discussing, like, these issues are complicated, you know, and the discussion of U.S.-China relations was confined for so long to a small number of China hands, like the China-watching community. And these are, like, usually a lot of very conflicted old white people who are just basically, you know, preserving their access and their careers by refusing to acknowledge that the fact that the U.S.-China relationship has been going off the rails for a very long time and that, you know, what the CCP was doing was no longer just affecting academics. It's affecting everybody. If you suffered for a year like most of us and didn't see your parents and, you know, maybe lost your job you know, and were stuck in your house fearing that you were going to get the coronavirus, you know instinctively that to some degree your suffering was exacerbated by the misactions of the Chinese Communist Party. In other words, what happens in Beijing doesn't stay in Beijing. And that sort of realization is very stark and very can be very cold, but it happens in waves. And one of the, one of the biggest moments was when the NBA was punished to the tune of $400 million for one tweet. Within a day of Daryl Morey sending one tweet, which is not even like That bad of a tweet, in my opinion. All these Chinese companies canceled their contracts with the NBA. The Rockets were no longer to be seen on Chinese television ever. The leadership of China came out and said that Daryl Morey had offended the delicate sensitivities of 1.4 Chinese million people. Adam Silver was in the biggest crisis in NBA history, and you know it's natural that he turned to the guy who he thought would know the most about it, Joseph Tsai, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. But Joseph Tsai who was the co-founder of Alibaba, took the CCP side. And, you know, I remember when I was covering this one night talking to N. S. Kanter, the Boston Celtic Center, who stood up for Dower Mori. N. S. Kanter said, my family's been imprisoned in Turkey because of my decision to speak out, and the NBA protected me, so why can't they protect Dower Mori for speaking out for people in Hong Kong? There was a core sort of hypocrisy there. How can the NBA be for social justice and the rights of Americans to say what they want, but not be for the rights of Americans to say what they want when it pisses off the Chinese government. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And that was a total disaster for the NBA. But, you know, silver lining is a lot of people were like, wait a second, I can't tweet what I want. They're going to punish my company and my industry. That's really screwed up. We can't have that. Okay. And that just shows you how out of control the Chinese Communist Party has gotten. If they're willing to start an international sports scandal, the biggest international sports scandal in history over one tweet, You know, what are they going to do when you do something that they really don't like? You know, and are we all supposed to live in a world where we can't tweet what we want because the Chinese Communist Party told us we can't? And that means they were exporting their repression to us. You know, and it's horrible that they're committing a genocide against their own people, but a lot of Americans are like, wait a second, that's bad, but now they're going to try to squelch my right to free speech in America about whatever, say whatever I want, and a lot of people got upset about that. But the only other point that I would make is that I think that in Washington, both parties handled this, and the Trump administration handled that crisis totally wrong, because all they did was criticize the NBA. But the NBA is not a foreign policy organization. They didn't know what to do. They're not powerful enough to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party. And my point was sort of like, hey, what if the U.S. government had gone to the NBA and been like, hey, we got your back. We're going to go to Beijing and say, no, you can't punish American companies for the tweets of Americans. That's not that's not going to fly. I'm sorry. You can't do it. But we, that's not what happened. We just quote-unquote dunked on the NBA because that was fun. But that didn't really solve the problem either.
0: Well, it was sadly hypocritical for a league that prides itself on being able to speak out on social issues that they were clearly terrified about the bottom line in that moment. But it's also especially bizarre, Josh, because Twitter doesn't even exist in China. So the fact that they went to those links, despite the fact that its own people really didn't have much access to, you know, those two sentences that Daryl Morey sent out there, man, it just continues to have me shaking my head even a couple years later.
1: Right. Right. It means they're lying. You know what I mean? It means they're lying to us when they say we offended 1.4 billion people. But it also means that they're not just trying to control the information inside China. They're trying to control the information in our societies. They're trying to control us. And we can't have that. The only response I have to that is, fuck you. No,
0: I'm going to tweet whatever I want. (laughs) Agreed with that. Fuck you, indeed. Now, Uyghur activists invited you to hang with them as they protested China's treatment of their people before and after the Washington Wizards hosted the Houston Rockets in a game in early 2019. What did you learn from those Uyghur activists that day? Yeah, right. So, you know, uh, this was right after the
1: Daryl Morey thing, the next opening game of the next season was the Rockets were in D.C., so all the young Uyghur activists in D.C. were like, we're going to go to that game. They saw this as an opportunity to raise awareness for the plight of their family members, and these were mostly American citizens who all, every single one of them, had family members in the concentration camps, and what they did was they showed up at the game, and they spelled out Google Uyghurs on their shirts, And the NBA was going crazy, man. They were kicking people out of the games for wearing free Hong Kong shirts. Can you imagine that? If you wore your free Hong Kong shirt to the, I think it was a Sixers game, you could get thrown out. We don't want politics in the NBA. Okay, since when was that the rule? And this is what the NBA was doing. So the young Uyghur activists were like, hey, okay, this is not politics. We're just saying Google it. How can that be political? Just educate yourself. So they all showed up. And the Wizards' ownership was not happy about it, but they sort of just let it go. And I spent the whole game talking to these young Uyghur activists, and their stories were harrowing. I mean, these are Americans, mostly, and their family members are in concentration camps. And nobody cares. Nobody does anything. There's no diplomatic pressure to get them out. I mean, of course, there's millions of people who are suffering in Xinjiang and other parts of China, and not just the camps in a system of surveillance and open prison before you get to the camps forced labor, slave labor. They've had their kids taken from them. Some of them have had their uteruses taken out of their body while they were sleeping. This is the kind of stuff that is going on in these facilities. But these young Uyghur activists, they weren't sad. They weren't angry. They were hopeful. They were thrilled that NBA fans were sort of all of a sudden tuned into their struggle, which is like, oh, wait, we're dealing with a Chinese Communist Party that would do this kind of thing, you know, and they would do it to you if they could, if you you pissed them off enough. And they just told me their stories. And I realized that the young Uyghur activists had the same message as the young Hong Kong activists and the young Tibetans and a lot of other people around the world who are suffering under the repression of totalitarian dictatorships. And that message is that we want the same things that you want. We want the freedom to practice our religion and to have Our family members call us on Skype and say whatever they want without getting arrested and thrown in a camp, and we want to be able to live in a world where those rights are protected, and that's not happening right now. And it doesn't matter if you're American or it doesn't matter if you're Australian or whatever. If you say something that goes against the Chinese Communist Party line, your relatives in China will be arrested and possibly killed. That's how bad it is. But they weren't upset. They weren't angry. They were hopeful. They were hopeful that Americans would care. And
0: a lot of them did. But, you know, so far, not enough, not enough. Sadly, you're right about that. Now, China has infiltrated so many different levels within American society, uh, both businesses, public and private. And MD Anderson has actually gotten caught up in this as well. How did the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston get caught up in this story through something called the Thousand Talents Plan? Right, right, right.
1: So, you know, we were talking about the bingo club before. There were a lot of people in Washington trying to figure out how malign chinese influence networks operate, you know? And one of the ways that they operate is through talent recruitment programs, which sounds like a nice thing. Oh, well, you know, let's recruit some talent. And there are hundreds of talent recruitment programs that are run by the Chinese Communist Party. The biggest one by far is called Thousand Talents. And what they do is they find the most talented Americans, but not just Americans, they do it all over the world, but for the sake of this conversation, Americans. And they bring them to China and they give them a bunch of money and they're like, hey, what can we do do together? And again, if you're uh, engaged in sort of scientific research, your first instinct is like, oh, that's great. You know, why wouldn't we want to collaborate? Isn't that great? And yeah, sure, I'll take that money. And, you know, when I get back to America, who knows? Maybe we'll do some stuff. But when the Trump administration, and this part was managed by the Justice Department, which had a huge China initiative, started looking at all these relationships one by one, they found a lot of really messed up stuff. They found a lot of corruption and theft. okay, And they realized that this open collaboration was being abused and weaponized on the Chinese side against us. And in other words, what they would do is they would, as many of these thousand talent people as they could get, they would pay them extra to steal. And yeah, it's kind of weird. Why would you steal science? Especially cancer research, right? Don't we all want to beat cancer? Why would you steal that? Well, that's a fair question, but there's several obvious answers. One is that, This technology and this science is worth a lot of money to them if they can beat us to the punch. And, you know, you just see it everywhere. And once they started turning over rocks, the Justice Department found that a lot of these scientists, some were Chinese, but a lot of them weren't Chinese, uh, who were in these talent programs, were stealing left, right, and center. And they hadn't disclosed what they were doing. And they had lied on their federal grant applications, and that's a crime. And they started to try to roll it up. But the problem was, when the FBI comes a knocking at your cancer center door... It doesn't always go well. You know, they didn't really know what they were doing. And MD Anderson was what, sort of the first big one. So they go into MD Anderson. They're like, oh, we think we got a problem here. People weren't disclosing what they were doing on the Chinese side. And, you know, that's a problem. And three of the researchers, I think three, maybe more, got fired. But then they couldn't make the case to prosecute them. So then some people said, oh, well, we're t- you're targeting the Chinese researchers. And it became kind of a mess. It was a... An example of how the Trump administration had taken a, a, really important issue and highlighted it rightly, but then kind of bungled the execution. And if the MD Anderson fired its researchers, I'm sure they had a good reason. And but were they committing crimes? Well, I don't think that part has been proven. But it was the first opening salvo, and then the Justice Department started to go to other places. And the next big one was the Moffitt Cancer Center in Orlando, and that one they were they had, by the time they got to that one, they had their their ducks in a row and they're like oh yeah okay you lied about being in the thousand talents program here's the evidence you're fired and they're probably going to prosecute those guys and uh, those were all five out of six weren't chinese or chinese Americans. so it's not just targeted against chinese but there's a risk that it could be abused that way that we have to be conscious of so then they started rolling up all these other guys and there was the the head of the harvard chemistry department they indicted him, you know, with a felony. That's a kind of a crazy thing because he was hiding his research, allegedly, that he was doing with the Chinese Communist Party in Wuhan, by the way. So this is to say that these are very complicated and sensitive issues, and we don't want to go into every school and research institution and cancer center and show me your Chinese research. You know, that's not a, that's not that's not good. We shouldn't do that. At the same time, we have a real problem here, and it's going to take a good faith effort by government and law enforcement and the scientific community and the academic community to sort it out together and to not slip into any of the bad habits or go down any of the bad paths that might arise.
0: Unfortunately, another example of this has to do with the California Public Employees Retirement System. How are they potentially helping to fund the Chinese military, as ridiculous as that may sound?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually pretty simple. You know, what CalPERS did, the largest state pension fund, was they drastically increased their holdings of Chinese companies, including a lot of Chinese companies that do a lot of bad things, including commit atrocities. <clears throat> now, when they started doing this, it didn't seem that unusual because they were loosely tracking major indexes. They weren't exactly tracking, but they were basically, their argument was like, oh, we're doing what the Wall Street indexes are doing. And that was true. FTSE Russell and MSCI and Bloomberg Barclays and all these massive wall street index firms and what they do is they pick a basket of stocks and then everyone follows them and then so it just drives billions if not trillions of dollars of american investment passively and when the indexes change their holdings trillions of dollars follow and they were that's what they're doing they're increasing their holdings of chinese companies including the companies that build the concentration camps and that build the cameras that sit atop the concentration camp walls and that build the missiles pointed against us and that build the ships that are pointed against us. And nobody said boo about it. No one ever bothered to raise any objections until about 2018, 2019. And then everyone was like, wait a second, is this good? Should we be doing this? Should we be forcing essentially millions of Californian pensioners to bet their future on the success of concentration camps? Does that make any sense? And so then when people looked into it, they found that the head of CalPERS, Ben Meng, was part of the Thousand Talents program, and he was alleged to be triple dipping. In other words, he's increasing the Chinese holdings for CalPERS, for the pension fund, and doing it on his own portfolio as well. In other words, he's accused of corrupting himself toward the benefit of the Chinese Communist Party and those companies. And he resigned mysteriously. They won't explain why. In the middle of the scandal, they're like, one day they're like, oh, he doesn't work here anymore. But he didn't do anything wrong. I'm like, okay, all right, I guess that's your story. But it was just another example on the one hand of the Thousand Talents program. was like, wait a second. Maybe this is something we need to take a harder look at. But also, wait a minute. You're telling us that public state pension funds are investing millions of American pensioners' futures into Chinese companies committing atrocities? How is that okay? And the only answer is like, oh, it's not okay, but nobody cared. And now it's a huge mess that we're going to have to untangle.
0: You admit to helping fuel tension between the U.S. and China in early March of 2020 as the pandemic was beginning to take hold of the U.S. What exactly happened?
1: Yeah, I wasn't trying to fuel tension, to be clear.
0: Uh, It was an
1: inescapable result of me breaking what ended up being a very big story, which is that U.S. diplomats had warned two years ago or three years ago now that there was a lot of problems at these Wuhan labs, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and that they were doing dangerous, risky research on back coronaviruses and how they could infect humans. Now let me just stop for a second and say that again a little bit more slowly. In 2018, U.S. diplomats visited the Wuhan Institute of Virology and wrote cables back to Washington warning that the lab was not following its safety procedures and that they were doing risky Research on bat coronaviruses that could infect humans, okay, 2018. Now, in 2020, when a bat coronavirus that could infect humans broke out in Wuhan, a lot of people inside the government, including the guys who wrote those cables, men and women, were like, wait a second, isn't that what we wrote about? Isn't that the thing that we warned you about that nobody cared about in 2018? We told you that there was this this lab was a problem. We told you that they were doing bat coronavirus research that it could infect humans. And that was a big risk. We should probably do something but Nobody cared. And now it seemed to them, at least, that that prediction had come true. Now, that doesn't mean that we know for sure that the lab was connected to the outbreak. It just means that, you know, in my view, there's enough evidence that we can't rule it out, which means we have to check it out. It I'm not saying that the labs did it. I'm saying that we don't know if the labs did it. That's why we have to investigate it, which hasn't happened. Now, when I broke that story in April 2020, that caused a rift in U.S.-China relations because we were in the middle of begging them for our masks and PPE, and the condition that they told the Trump administration for us to get our masks and our PPE was to shut up about the origin of the coronavirus. So all these people inside the Trump administration thought that the labs should be investigated, that that it probably came from the labs, but no one said it because they were being blackmailed and threatened by the Chinese Communist Party, and they were holding our masks over our heads. And so, so when I broke that story, that deal was off, and then Pompeo and Trump endorsed the lab accident theory, which caused the mainstream media to call them liars and assholes, and the coronavirus pandemic and the origin of the coronavirus issue became highly politicized in our society, and that politicization remains to this day, that here we are a year and a half after the outbreak and nobody it's investigating how it started. How is that? How do we live in a world where we have the biggest crisis in 100 years, 3 million people died, 585,000 Americans and counting, dead. And nobody's looking into it. Nobody's like, hey, how did, how did this happen? I say this all the time. It's not about blaming China. It's about preventing the next pandemic. That if you had any car crash, plane crash, nuclear plant meltdown, you name it, any disaster, the most obvious and urgent thing to do is to find out what happened. Can you imagine if we had had those Boeing planes flying into mountains and everyone was like, oh, let's not look into it. Let's just assume it was a random act of nature and go about our day. That's crazy. You wouldn't do that. It's a dangerous and stupid thing to do. That's what's going on with the coronavirus, and I know very well how this got politicized because, again, as I just told you, I was in the middle of it, and that's terrible, but – Now, here we are a year and a half later, we have to figure out what, we still have to figure out what happened, and we're still not doing it, and the World Health Organization took a stab at it, but they messed it up, and they messed it up for a very simple reason, is that they hired the best friends of the lab to investigate the lab, and the best friends of the lab were these scientists who had been doing this research in conjunction with the Wuhan scientists, again, who are probably very nice people, but are not in control of the Chinese system, and they had a conflict of interest, and they very corruptly told everybody not to look into the lab, and then... They went to the lab for a couple of hours and talked to their best friends and determined that they were innocent and said we don't have to look into the lab. So we had a year and a half of this bullshit, and it's like finally I think in Congress a few people, you know, not many, and a few journalists now are saying, wait a second. Maybe it's not so crazy. Maybe we should look into this lab. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying the lab did. I'm saying we should look into the lab.
0: Yeah, it's despicable on so many levels, and thankfully uh, that theory is not being treated as a conspiracy theory anymore, rather something that uh, people are waking up to and understanding that more questions need to be asked. Josh, how concerned should we be about China increasing their use of cyber attacks on public and private businesses as a component of their toolbox in trying to, let's say, fix America?
1: Yeah, it's a huge problem. It's an anvil that they hold over our head at all times and it's not just about the cyber attacks which are one thing that's part of it it's about what are the risks of having chinese tech in our infrastructure that if you have a huawei station in your neighborhood and rural communities all over the country have huawei tech in their telecom infrastructure what's the vulnerability there do we even know how do you mitigate it you know okay well we can ban Huawei tech from our country. Well, what if it we're in South Korea and they've got all the Huawei tech, but our military is there because we've got a base there? What do we do about that? You know, when you look at a, a thing like TikTok, well, you could say, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, if the Chinese Communist Party wants to spend its time collecting videos of like high school girls doing dances, then let them, you know what I mean? Like, that's not really the most important thing, but it's not the point. The point is what they're doing is not just to attack us. It's to collect of our data, to collect our information. So, you know, the OPM hack, when they hacked the Office of Personnel Management, I was part of that hack. They got my file, whatever it is. You know, I am not, I don't have a secret clearance, but I do have a government file because I have to apply for all these built State Department press passes and all this stuff. It's got a lot of my stuff in it. They stole that, along with 22 million other Americans, okay? Then I remember there's a st- I broke the story. I didn't break it, but I, I broke a piece of it about how this Chinese company bought Grinder, okay? And at the time, people were like, "Oh, who cares? You know, what do they what, they what, buy grinder? Why should we care?" But then a lot of national security people were like, "Wait a second. That's pretty sensitive information. About three million men around the world, many of whom who might want not want that sensitive information out. Imagine if they cross-reference that with the OPM government employee information you'd have a lot of blackmail opportunities right there and if you th- just think about how much data is on your phone and in your tiktok everywhere you go you know what do you like what don't you like what they're doing is they're putting together all that data and information to build the most sinister and most powerful artificial intelligence machine ever conceived okay and that's what they're doing to the people inside china is they're collecting every single piece of data to make sure that they can manage every piece of their lives to give them a social credit score to manage their behavior so that to protect the party and to advance their interests. And, you know, we don't want to help them do that. That's a bad idea. We should not help them do that. We should protect our data. Now, then a lot of people say to me, "Well, Josh, doesn't Facebook steal all your data and blah, blah, blah. Yes, that's a, another problem. It's a different problem. It's a related problem, but it's not the exact same problem. And I don't want my data abused by American corporations to make money. That's definitely bad, but I, I doubly don't want my data abused by the Chinese Communist Party to build an AI machine that's going to commit a genocide or help them commit a genocide. That's worse. They're both bad, but that's worse. So I think we have to think of the China cyber threat in that context. It's not just about hacking pipelines. That's what the Russians do. You want your pipeline back? Give us $5 million. Okay, that's bad, but we get that. But what the Chinese are doing is... We don't want to attack your pipeline. Just download the TikToks and do a bunch of dancing videos, and don't worry about
0: it. That's actually worse. We just want your dancing videos and your dick pics. That's what China is looking for. Yeah, can you? I I don't want to give them either one. <laughs> exactly. All right, last question, Josh, and this is going to be the most important question I ask you today. When you were on Uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, you briefly mentioned having beers with the Dalai Lama, but you said this isn't the time or place for that story, so I'm hoping here and now are the time and place. uh, So how the heck did you end up having beers with the Dalai Lama, and what was that uh, like? You misquoted me. I didn't say we had beers with the Dalai Lama. I I had beers with Jamie Metzl
1: in Dharamsala on a trip where we met the Dalai Lama. (laughs) I misheard
0: that one. My apologies. That's okay, uh, but lot- it's still
1: a good question because this—I—I'm I, really glad we got to talk about this because I think this is really important. When I went to my bosses at the Washington Post in 2016 after Trump won the election, and you could just think back, like you met in the mainstream media, a lot of people were really shocked by that. Some were upset, but you know, most of us were just shocked. You know, Donald Trump is going to be president of the United States—that sounds pretty crazy. I bet that's going to be a wild ride. And 90% of the national security and foreign policy journalists started on the Russia story 90% or so and I went to my boss and I said I want to do the China story not the Russia story and he he said why I said because I think it's gonna be important no one else seems to be doing it he said okay what do you need I said well I'm gonna need to travel to Asia a bunch of times you know and you're gonna need to pay for it he said where do you want to go first and I said I want to go to Dharamsala India and I want to interview the Dalai Lama and he looked at me and he said I hope you find enlightenment That was it. And then I slowly backed out of the room (laughs) so that he wouldn't change his mind. And so that's immediately what I did. My first trip was to Dharamsala, India. I went to a forum organized by the Tibetan government in exile. It included participation of the Dalai Lama. I asked the Dalai Lama what he thought of Trump. And was he going to meet Trump? Because remember, at this time, I was like, hey, I wonder if they're going to meet. And he said, I'll never forget, he said, hmm, the first time I hear America first, I think, not so nice. That's what he said. And he laughed a little, and he said, but American people believe in freedom and democracy, and that will never change. That's what he said. And that was basically it, you know what I mean? And, and I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. Donald Obama's a pretty wise guy. Not a wise guy, like a very wise person. And uh, he can be a wise guy. But anyway, over the course—I also spent a week in Dharamsala meeting with Tibetans of all stripes, political leaders, youth leaders. And just imagine if you're in the Tibetan government in exile, you're now in year 60 or 70— of your struggle you know your homeland has been occupied six million tibetans being living in a state of basic total repression having their culture their language their nationality their freedoms steadily eroded they also have camps they also have prisons and all of that stuff and economic degradation and humiliation every single day of their lives the dalai lama left in 1959 hasn't been back since but in that week, aside from my cool interaction with the Dalai Lama, talking to all these Tibetans, I realized that they knew something that Washington had yet to wake up to, which is that this is the character of the Chinese Communist Party, not the Chinese people, not all of the Chinese government, just the party. This is what they do. This is how who they are. This is how they act. And they had been dealing with it for 70 years, and we hadn't been dealing with it at all. And their struggle, their struggle, the Tibetan people struggle for dignity and human rights and basic freedom and the right to do what they want and say what they want and speak what language they want and practice what religion they want. That's the universal struggle. That's the same struggle that the Uyghurs are going through and that the Hong Kongers are going through and that, by the way, we went through in something called the American Revolution. The idea of America is based on that struggle. It's based on that belief that human dignity and human rights are things that are given to us by our creators, not things that are given to us by a party or a king or
0: even a government, that they're ours, and we have to insist on them. And so that's what I learned meeting the Dalai Lama. Great way to end this conversation. He is Josh Rogan, a Washington Post foreign policy correspondent and CNN political analyst. He's also the author of the new book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it'll take you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts right now and enjoy this program, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.